Here we go. So you're in Ephesians 6. We'll get to that in a moment. I want to start by saying that whenever I teach in one of these settings, whether it's our once a month gathering or something else, every time without exception, of course, I give myself to the Lord in prayer. And I, I have a sense of what he wants to say. Either I have a very strong burden from the Lord, a very strong and specific leading as to what he's saying and wants me to talk about, teach or whatever. Or even if it's a little bit of a less intense variety, I have a definite leading. I have a topic. Maybe I feel a little more latitude and freedom. But I always have a sense from the Lord, whether it's strong or it's more mild. I always have a sense when when I get up for these moments of what he wants to say. And uh, that's not to talk about how spiritual I am. Far from it. it. It's just to say that I, I take a great deal of care in doing what I'm doing. And uh, I seek the Lord. And I, I feel it's very holy and sacred to communicate with the saints. The scripture says, when you do it, do it like you're an oracle from God. So my point is, I'm very sober when I do it. But my main point is that I've never felt so led as I do tonight. I've never felt like I have a word of urgency and clarity of apostolic authority and prophetic timeliness like I have tonight. That's not to hype this up. That's to make us sober because the enemy from the moment I woke up has been resisting this in unusual, bizarre ways. Uh, most of my family's not even here tonight because of all that. So it's, it's for real. Um, it wasn't like some fight within. It wasn't an argument among us. <laughs> they didn't come because they're mad, but I'm here. <laughs> no, <laughs> it wasn't anything like that. It wasn't internal family struggles, but we're all processing um, something harsh that happened today and kept us and just derailed us. Uh, so and we had all the worship, you know, faith had everything arranged and, you know, the, the other folks took us through. So it's just one of them days. Uh, but this thing is going forth, you know, as the Lord was stirring and I started to feel it gel and, uh, you know, during the week and then particularly praying last night, the Lord really detained me in prayer last night. I'm like, all right, I'm staying up late to pray. Now I know why I had that great prayer time last night because <laughs> it wasn't going to be the same today, but had great worship anyway. But I felt it stirring and gelling to this point until it really popped through in a prophetic way. Oh man, you're coming forth with a sword. Now look, I'm not boasting on a message I haven't preached yet. It may not be the most inspiring message. Maybe the best thing you ever heard. I don't know. I don't care. I really, Lord, I love you. I don't care how, you know, hyped this is. I just, I, I felt to communicate this because it's real. And I really want your attention. And I want you to uh, uh, take, you, you know, pr- pray about what I'm talking about. We've got lots of guests today too, which is interesting. So, uh. Yeah, it applies to you also. But especially for those, you know, communicating to those that are, that are in our care. So let's see what happens. You know, we recognize seasons here. We hold to them loosely, depending on what the Spirit's doing. But about every quarter, we emphasize a different kingdom theme. We do it every year, the same thing. 
Uh, sometimes there's different levels of emphasis than others, but it's all so that we can develop a culture. And as we enter the winter months, we go December, January, February, during that quarter we emphasize rest, spiritual rest, entering into the Lord's rest, right? Why don't I just say rest a thousand times? Uh, so that's our emphasis, but it's a dual emphasis because when we enter into rest, which refers to a place of full submission to Jesus, we're all as well, right? It's a spiritual rest. You know, the fruit of the Spirit is peace. Sometimes we got to fight like dogs to get there, right? We have anything but rest. That's why even the Bible says, be diligent to enter his rest. It actually takes effort to enter rest. It's wild. That old Bible just full of those tensions. So we emphasize that because we want to be a sabbatical people. We want to be at rest, which means we're submitted to Jesus. We don't have our own agenda. We have his agenda. And we trust. Him. Our faith is real and it's relevant to the practical things of our lives. And it's going to be all right. In fact, it's going to be better than all right. It's going to be victorious. That's rest. Well, the dual emphasis is, right, when we're at rest, we are powerful in the Holy Spirit. It's the same thing from two angles. It's like rest is represented by the cross. But when, when you're crucified with Christ, you have resurrection life, which is the raw and tangible power of the Holy Spirit. Right? So to be at rest means to be active in the Holy Spirit, where he's a tangible reality in our lives. The Bible commands us to pray in the Spirit. So we have to have some sense, experientially, of who and what the Spirit is in our lives. And when we are soaked in the Spirit... And operating in the Spirit, even though we're active, we might even be doing works in the Spirit, but we're at rest. Because in Hebrews, it talks about entering into rest from dead works. So we might be at rest from dead works, but we could be doing all kinds of living works and always be at rest. People who operate in the Spirit, they're not getting all stressed out in unhealthy ways. You know, there's measures of stress that create pressure and bring us to the Lord and, you know, we got to get things done and whatever. But there's unhealthy stress. People in the spirit don't experience that unhealthy stress that that can cause all kinds of physical and emotional uh, problems. Right. So, yeah, my illustration for this is in John 5. You don't have to turn there. I'm just referring to it. Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. Was the day of rest. He healed a man, right? It was the man who was, what's the John 5 healing? The pool of Bethesda, the man who was paralyzed, he was lame. And so what did Jesus tell him to do? First of all, of course, Jesus healed him. So he was working on the Sabbath and Jesus was like a really good Jew. The God kind of Jew, (laughs) not a necessarily traditional religious Jew. But I'm thinking if I want to know what it means to be a good Jew, I'm going to look to Jesus. There, you're all right. I'm sorry, I could have gotten it for you. No, you're fine. I didn't want you to have to step on your phone. Okay, just, no, my bad. Anyway, so he's, he's doing his thing on the Sabbath, so that must not have been a problem. And then he told the man who was healed, didn't he tell him to take up his bed and walk? Which was not legal to carry something like that on the Sabbath. And so it says, uh, John tells us straight up, 
They persecuted Jesus because he healed a man on the Sabbath. And here was Jesus' response on the Sabbath. The Father's working. And I'm working. Which is like the opposite of the traditional view of Sabbath. So how was Jesus keeping Sabbath while working? Because his works were in the Spirit. So he's at total rest from dead works. But he's active in living works. If he's operating in the Spirit, he is not violating the principle of Sabbath. Which means we're doing our thing separate from God. God says, enter into rest from all that. Because ultimately you're going to be really stressed out. You're going to be weary and heavy laden. But if you're doing my works, it's like you've, you've slept the best sleep for three days. And you're full of all kinds of green smoothies. <laughs> With nothing but nutrients and none of those bad sugars. We all know there's good sugars. We know that, right? <laughs> right? It's, it's, that's, that's the way you feel when you operate in the Spirit. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to finish his work. So Jesus was energized by doing the works of Father God. It was, he, he was always at rest. He was always energized. He was healthy spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and physically because he was always at rest from any and all kinds of selfish ambition, dead works, and was always active in the spirit. Even if he's up praying all night, there's something, he's just refreshed. Because he's in the spirit. So it's a dual emphasis. When we talk about entering into rest, we want to experience rest where we've been stressed. We want the spirit to minister to us. We want to minister to one another. But also, we want to emphasize the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? We are unapologetically kingdom disciples. From a Pentecostal and charismatic background. Now, those historical realities are very helpful. Right, But really, we should be charismatic in the biblical sense because we're kingdom people. There's no other vision for kingdom disciples except to be spirit-filled, to be able to pray in the spirit, and to share the gifts of the spirit, and to manifest miracles and gifts of healings. We're unapologetically that way, and we want more of the anointing of God. We want to experience more miracles, more praying in tongues, more gifts of the Spirit. Amen and amen. It, one, it is one of our descriptive mottos just to help us kind of locate who we are as kingdom people in this work. It's one of our mottos that we are discovering the powerful way of living in Jesus Christ. So during a period of rest, but also activity in the Spirit, I want to emphasize this today. I want to emphasize the power of the Spirit, and I want to emphasize being powerful people in the Spirit. So right, that's why I have you in Ephesians chapter 6. Now, besides all this, I felt the Lord leading me in several directions, which now I'm going to specify. One of them has been, just in my own life, I have been... Yet again, working my way through Ephesians, but really with a distinct leading of the Lord. In fact, the Lord, I feel, I put, he put it on my heart, to translate Ephesians for myself. And so I'm going to read to you from my translation tonight of Ephesians. I'm still working on it. Some of it's a, a little, um, well, it needs a little work, but I'm doing it for my benefit. I don't know if the translation adds a tremendous amount to the body of knowledge but working through it and asking all these questions of words and phrases and the way Paul uses it elsewhere and 
Lord, what do you mean here? Uh, because we could take the word for granted sometimes. We just read through words. I want them to have traction. I want every word to be like a barb that catches me. Like a twig in the forest, but giving sight. Does your eye feel better, by the way? Yes. Right. And so, you know, Paul uses a word here. You know, the word for power in the New Testament is dunamis. Right. And he uses the verb here a few times, the verbal form. But the way that usually translate is uh, in our translations, it, it translates as strong or able because it sounds better in English. And those are perfectly accurate translations and they sound better in English. Now, when I, least, I mean, the way it flows in the sentence, it sounds better in English to say, be strong in the Lord. Or to say, um, so that you will be able to stand. Right? The way I translate it, I want to retain the word power for dunamis, because we usually associate that. In English, it sounds a little clunky, but I don't care, because I want the word exposed. Plus, we have our motto. That we are discovering... The powerful, is that right? Or we're discovering the way of powerful living in Jesus Christ. That's what, that's part of what our goal is. To discover the way, which has its own sermon, not for tonight, the way of powerful living in Jesus Christ. So I'm retaining this word for uh, powerful when it comes up. You'll see that in a minute. Alright, so anyway, but it's, it's not just this passage, it's all of Ephesians. Okay? In some way, I believe we're in a season where the Lord is just going to deposit the full letter to the Ephesians in our hearts. And we need it because this is meant to be practical. We're going to need in our lives as churches, Ephesians 1, stick with me now, I'm going all the way through, 2, 3, 4, and 5. So that we can do Ephesians 6. Very important. Because this is the prophetic part of the message. That claims. Here's what God's saying now. Number one. We need Ephesians message. And number two. We are being called to particular spiritual warfare. In fact. And I want to say this with great care. Okay. I wouldn't normally talk this way. Don't you love when people preface this? This never happens to me. But. I never post politically, but... Okay. So, I'm sorry I said that. Um, I don't talk a lot about demonic forces because my focus is on Jesus. Woo! It sounds holy, but it's true. I hardly think about it. And I don't... You know, I'm not into people that are so... Okay. I'm into the people. I love all. But I'm not into when people... So emphasize spiritual warfare that they're focused on the devil and they don't even know it. Okay? But there are times you got to face up the enemy and explicitly call him out, rebuke him, and take dominion. Now, that's plus everybody, whenever the devil is attacking you personally, we, we have an inheritance of dominion as children of God. But to address that way, bigger powers that oversee regions... I don't recommend you just go do that. 
Because you can't address those powers just based on your identity. <gasps> That's heresy nowadays. But you can't address those powers just based on identity as an individual. We have to have a certain identity and lifestyle as the church. Or it doesn't matter what we shout at the heavenly places. You know, we're some spiritual warfare. There's just religious Christians who get up and shout on a hilltop while there's all kinds of bickering. There's no family covenant as the church. We all attend. There's no sense of commitment to one another, no body life. And it's like, that's where your dominion over the devil is. So you're going to avoid that. And there's all kinds of unforgiveness and irreconciliation. Then you're going to shout at the devil. Don't do, I'm telling you, don't do that. He will attack you back and hurt you bad. I'm serious. So I don't take this lightly. I believe the Lord is calling us to address a certain principality in our area. But we can't do that, Ephesians 6.10 yet. we got to go through the first five and a half chapters. So we're getting ready for that. I don't know exactly what it will look like, because really the main rebuke is just when we're living Ephesians 1-6. through 6. That's exactly what we're taught in Ephesians 4. Remember that passage? Jesus ascended on high. Well, there's your kingdom over all powers. Specifically named in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 6, and implied in Ephesians 4. He's above them all. And then what's the fruit of the victory? He gives the five ministries. What do the five ministries do? Uh, Equip the saints to actually, they're doing everything to build the body. And there's your dominion of the king on earth. And if you don't have that, it doesn't matter what you say. So I really mean it when I say we need the Ephesians one through five and a half before we do this thing where we address some principality. And by God's grace, I'm saying this under the covering of the Lord and in an environment where there's legitimate authority, leadership, and people of a certain level of sobriety and maturity so that we're not handling this in some kind of flaky way. Just get ready. Now, if you're not a part of us, you don't have to take this on. But if you are, you need to... I I recommend that you really take this soberly because if if you... if you test it and find it true, you're signing up for something that will call on you and me to make adjustments as we go. Adjustments in our lives. You know, what Paul, what, what, what Paul lists that we need to confront the enemy is an intense and also full, a word he uses, you know, a, a full life that's devoted to the Lord in practical ways. There's not these gaping holes where you start addressing things and then the enemy's like, just like Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give a place to the devil. Here you come onto the hilltop, start shouting at the sky and you're angry at somebody or there's something undone in a relationship and the enemy's like, I'm already in. What are you shouting at? You've given me authority and now you're going to shout at me? Yeah, keep on. I'll help you to the hill. Give you the sense of authority while I'm winning the battle because you refuse family. You refuse to embody the kingdom according to the gospel, which we're elucidating in Ephesians. It creates a covenant family. Well, I like this. I prefer this. No, we're not asking you what you prefer. That's not kingdom Christianity. I prefer things don't happen sometimes at my house, but I got to deal with it and they got to deal with me, whatever it is, because that's family. You know, I would rather I not have to nurse someone back to health or deal with this issue or now make this expenditure or work this thing out. But your family, you have to. I'm not going to go down the street to the, and, and attend the family I prefer. That's sick. That is sicko. 
But we bring that mentality into our churches and then we, we think we're going to do something against the devil. We're not. So what I believe the Lord is saying is, okay, just, and I believe this applies to any saint in the city. I mean that. We do not have an elite attitude here or we'd be dead anyway. Right? So this applies to anyone and everyone who really wants to embrace the kingdom. But I have to speak to the sphere where I have some influence and some responsibility. Um, we need to prepare for battle. Because the Lord is not saying, you're perfect, you're ready. He might even be saying, you'll never be perfect, you'll never be flawless. But you have signed on to try for kingdom life. House church is not my method. It's just the only way I could possibly see kingdom life lived out. My goal is not a house church method. My goal is kingdom life. And I don't see other ways of doing that. I have yet to see it. I've thought about it for a couple of few decades. Prayed about it. Studied about it. Don't see it. That's why we do it. But our goal is not a house church model. Our goal is the kingdom. And the Lord's not saying you've achieved it. Now you're ready. He's saying you, you've, you've, you've done enough to be ready to hear... I'm now putting you on a course to get ready further. You're trying. You've thrown off a few things that would normally hinder Christians, mindsets and whatever. Okay, well now then, I'm going to use you and others with you to confront this thing so that we could have a greater latitude of influence in our city. And I'm saying we have to wait for this to happen before we share the gospel. That's happening. We always have the Holy Spirit. We can do whatever... God wants us to do. But the church is never identified in scripture under a franchise name. That was something to pause about. Churches are never identified by franchise ministry names in scripture. They're identified by cities, by regions, right? Regions, Achaia, Galatia, Asia Minor, right? The seven churches of Asia Minor. Cities. I don't know, what is it? Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Philippians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. Right? The churches of cities. Not fragmented franchises. People come in and do their thing. We do hamburgers. We do pizzas. I'm telling you, man, we're... Anyway, praise the Lord. Or churches that meet in certain people's homes. And then that's not the pastor. That's just to identify the location. Gaius' home. The church that meets in the home of Prisca and Aquila or Priscilla and Aquila. Right? So they're, they're identified in these ways. Regionally, locationally, not franchisely. That's our thing. We've done that. So what we're saying is, look, we're going for the kingdom. Right? So what God is after, everyone, what he's after is something in our city. And he's gathering people who are going to be willing to recognize this thing and defy it. In the name of Jesus, according to his kingdom and his dominion and the way of powerful living. And then flourish in the wake of its defeat. That's my prophetic claim. That God is gearing us to address a principality. I'm not saying we're going to go do it yet. And I'm not saying what it's going to look like. We have enough to do just to get our lives in order for it. But that's where we're going. Jesus addressed... These powers at times, it wasn't his focus, but when it came up, it happened. Do you remember the man? Actually, in Matthew, it was the men, too. The Gadarenes. Do you remember that story? Mark 5, Matthew 8, Luke 8. Extraordinary story. You can turn there if you want. 
You are free to do that. I'm just going to allude to it. One day we'll get to Ephesians 6. <laughs> we will. I'm not going to spend a long time doing this, but you got to love the story because Jesus called this thing out in two ways. He made it identify its name, and then he made it look like pigs to reveal what it was. People are like, why did Jesus do what it wanted? Because he knew what would happen. Not just that they would kill themselves, but he wanted to say, you see what I'm casting out here, guys? They're pigs. The entire story, that conglomeration of beings that held sway over the region, gave deference to Jesus on every score, every time. In fact, it starts like this. Jesus comes on the shore, and those two men come. Mark identifies, Luke identifies just one, because he was the main one. The other guy's this little partner dude, I'm sure, because I've seen that before. Anyway, the one dude, we'll focus on him, he comes out, he bows to Jesus. All those demons, as much as they hate Jesus, they recognize his royalty and his dominion over them. So they bow. And then they, they, there's a challenge and a defiance, but they're still bowing. What do we have to do with you, son of the most high God? And Jesus starts telling him, telling them, come out, you unclean spirit. They don't come out yet because he's making a point. But everything they do is in deference to him. They even say, if, please, they're begging him, don't cast us out of the region. Because they want their dominion. They want the area. That's what they're after. We fragment in the franchise. And they're like, yay! We keep the region. You keep McDonald's. Your McDonald's church will take the region. So God's saying, okay, let's think differently. All right, anyway. So they say, don't cast us out of the region. And then Luke says, into the abyss. So we get both sides of that. And, and then they say, if you're going to send us, if you're going to cast us out, send us. The root word there is the same word for apostle. Not that that's related. They're not apostles. But it's the idea of dispatch. In other words, the greater authority is sending the lower authority somewhere. Send us. They know who to go to. They don't have control. Send us into the swine. And uh, he did. And we know what happened next. So you see the swine throwing themselves off the hill, which is a sign of the demons coming out. And then the, that whole region was clean. Pretty interesting, right? You guys with me? A couple of other interesting points in that story. Uh, Matthew uses an unusual word to say that the, the, the two men came out to meet Jesus. It's an unusual word. They came out to meet him. And then they had their dialogue with Jesus, right? So the demons in the people come out to meet Jesus, right? Several verses later, after the man's delivered, the townspeople Same phrase, same unusual word. They come out to meet Jesus. Same exact word. And Matthew does that on purpose because it's an unusual word. He wants you to see that the townspeople are acting like the demons that oversaw them. Even though they're not the ones possessed. The guy possessed has these powers controlling him from the sky and they're in him on the earth in them. But the, the conglomeration that they call legion oversees the region. So when the people who aren't demonized come out, they're still under the influence. They're shaped by that demonic stronghold. They act like it. In fact, they, it, again, the same word uh, is used twice. When the demons implore Jesus, the people, the townspeople who came out to meet him the same way, also, same word, implore Jesus to leave. So the gospel writers are showing us, do you get the hints? The people are acting like the demons. There's a parallel. 
But Jesus brings the kingdom there. He transfers the influence from the darkness to the light, right? So what happens? Well, first of all, Jesus casts the demons out. They go in the swine. The swine kill themselves. And the, the, the demonic powers, we don't know where they go, but they don't stay in the region. And then the man who's delivered, he's clothed and in his right mind. And now he's next to Jesus. And everyone comes out and they're freaked out. They're afraid. Why? Because as demonic as it was, they were used to it. To be ruled by that demon was comfortable for them. And secondly, because they knew that the dude who used to run around naked in the tombs and was so strong he could break chains. Here's this Jewish man, this, this nice Jewish carpenter's son, who's more powerful than that. So they're like, whoa, dude. <laughs> okay, just, just get out of here, man. That dude could break iron chains. You delivered him. I think we're afraid of you. Maybe you should leave. And Jesus took up their request and he did leave. But the man who was delivered requested to go to Jesus, uh, excuse me, to follow Jesus, right? And Jesus said, no, which is interesting. No, you can't follow me. You stay here. And you, the region was called the Decapolis. It was a region of 10 cities. So Decapolis means Decapolis, 10 cities. It was a region. He goes, you go all around and tell all the things the Lord did for you. Isn't that awesome? The guy with the legion which the human headquarters of demonic dominion over that region became the missionary of the kingdom to that region. Now that's taking out the principality and replacing it with the kingdom. Jesus even took the request, okay, I'll leave, but this guy's going to stay. And he's going to talk about the kingdom in clear terrain. Because there's a lot of work there yet to do because those demons may be gone. Now you've got a big, huge lump of carnality. But there's a man there. Jesus dispatched his man. That's powerful. The Lord wants to do something similar with us. Similar in principle. Exactly what it will look like is not our concern tonight. Our concern tonight is what I'm about to talk about. And that was not merely the introduction. I'm well into the message, so don't worry. I'm sure you're not worried. In any case, we move on. We will finally look at Ephesians 6.10. And I'm going to talk about some words here. Because I am translating this passage and I am going to talk about it. <laughs> now, here's the way I translate verse 10. It says, from here, I say, I say, Paul say, from this point on, no, no. So, from this point on, become more powerful in the Lord. All right? The, the term that's translated finally does not just mean finally. It means from here on out. And he has the therefore. So the therefore re- refers back to five and a half chapters. Now that you've heard me, and that's exactly what's happened. He came all the way up through instructions to family applying the gospel. Now he's saying, okay, now that I've equipped you to be a gospel family. From this point forward, you must become more powerful. So he's not just saying finally. He's saying, therefore, from here on out. That's the first difference that should get some traction. Because the entire letter has been leading up to this moment. And the second thing is, he's not just telling them to be strong. It can be translated that way. But there's probably, it it is better 
uh, to translate it more accurately with the nuance of become strong or continue to increase in power. That's the exhortation. From this point on, just like our motto is, we're discovering the way of powerful living in Jesus Christ. Well, that's what we're doing now. Paul himself started that motto. From this point forward, if you're really gospel people, now remember, we're going to go back, so we're not going to start here. We're mentioning it at the beginning, but we're going to go backwards and rediscover what Paul said up to this point. Somehow. I don't know if I'm going to do things. I don't know how I'm going to do this, but we'll, we'll do it. I don't think once a month for three months is enough. We'll figure it out. Um, but we're starting here. So Paul's saying in light of Ephesians 1, 1 through 6, 9, all right, be powerful and increase in your power in the Lord. And I continue to read here, and in the dominion rooted in his strength. Then I'm translating a word that usually is translated might, which is accurate, but it's also a, a word that is translated dominion or ruling might. The power to rule. So I thought dominion captures both. Might just gets one side of it. Kingdom is just another side, plus there's a different word for kingdom. So I went for dominion, plus I can explain it. Power dominion. So from this point forward, become more powerful in the Lord. And in the dominion rooted in His strength. Clothe yourselves with God's complete set of battle gear. So you will be powerful to stand against the schemes of the slanderer. Because the struggle for us is not against blood and flesh. It is rather against the rulers. Against the authorities. Against the world dominions or dominators of this darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly regions. In light of this, take up God's complete set of battle gear. So you will be powerful to withstand in that evil day. And having prepared in every way to stand. See the way the language kind of gets more traction when we slow it down. We say it a little bit differently, but still accurately. Perhaps more accurately, perhaps. I want to, I want to read that verse again. In light of this, where the real battle is, take up, which means it doesn't happen automatically. Take up God's complete set of battle gear so you will be powerful. That's the word. Usually it says able, which is perfectly accurate, but it doesn't catch you. The word there is rooted in dunamis. It's the dunamis verb. So that you will be powerful to withstand in the evil day. And having prepared in every way to stand. See that? The language is right there. I'm not making it up. We have to prepare. Guys, we have to prepare for that day. We got to prepare for this. this. This whole value system that we articulate, all we're trying to do is identifying things in the gospel that maybe aren't traditionally and conventionally identified, but we're daring in our naivete, but it is an innocence, 
we're daring to say, look, the Bible says this, that, let's just do that. Okay, let's do it. So we're, we're, we're doing that. We're saying we just want to live a kingdom life. We're trying. We're not claiming to do it perfectly. We're not trying to compare ourselves, but we're saying we're trying. So God's saying, okay, well, then I want to use you to face something that my people are more than capable of facing if they're ready. But these values that we've identified, we, we just all the more have to take them joyfully seriously. It's not just cool talk so we can write our values on a website. In fact, let's just take them off the website and live them and see if somehow, and I know this may blow some of our minds, but see if somehow, if God's kingdom can spread without the internet and social media. It may not be possible, but it might be possible. I don't mind using it as a tool, but it's a poor substitute for reality, right? So let's not just talk about it. Let's say, all right, this is what, you know, we're preparing for the day of battle. We're already in a battle. And God may not require us to go address something explicitly. It may be a lifestyle we enter into because that thing mows a lot of things down by itself. But we don't know exactly what it will look like, but we need to get ready. Not out of fear. Well, by the way, if, if you're in sin, I would recommend you repent of sin. I'm talking about known sin and rebellion. Or lifestyle areas that are under the dominion of, of your carnality. I would just recommend you do repent. Nothing wrong with a little fear of the Lord. I mean, David Hogan was taking his missionaries up to that one place uh, where they were going to confront some demonized person. and There's all kind of fetishes everywhere. And as they're getting closer to the hut where all this is happening, they're feeling the presence of evil. And he looks back at his guys and says, I hope none of you are in sin. <laughs> So as we prepare, we should do the, you know, the Christianity 101 things. Just repent of sin. You know, the hyper grace message is not our message. Let's make sure we repent of sin. Not just talk about how wonderful grace is. Let's repent of sin and, and use grace that way and get ourselves ready. But with the fear of the Lord, still, this is a joyful privilege. I'm not trying to scare you. Sobriety, I'm fine with. Fear, no. We, we don't want fear. We want to see this as a joy, joyful privilege. But at the same time, we want to be responsible stewards of what we're given. Yeah. Let's get ready. It, it's, it's interesting that, you know, my friend Jeff Hubing from Chicago, he, he felt like the first class he wants to offer the different churches that, that we're related to in these different cities is a class on Ephesians 4. It starts in January. You can do it for free online. It's like a college-level class with guest speakers for eight weeks. And just It's online. All you got to do is sign up. Uh, but it's something we're all trying to do together. You know, the four cities. Um, actually, there's there's five cities that work together. Um, I mean, works in those cities. Anyway, it's uh, interesting timing that it's in Ephesians. He wants to do that teaching. Ephesians 4. I already sent out the email. So what we want to do is get ready. Well, I'll read the rest of the passage, but then we'll go backwards a bit. Just a bit. I can't see the, the time for the glare. Okay. Oh, I have it right here. No problem. So in light of this, we're taking up God's complete set of battle gear. We're going to be powerful to withstand on the evil day. That's verse 13. And having prepared in every way to stand. Stand, therefore, having buckled your waist with truth and fastened on the breastplate of righteousness and strapped your feet with the readiness of the gospel of peace in everything, taking up the shield of faith, which with, with which you will be powerful to smother all the burning arrows of the evil one. 
and receive the helmet of deliverance and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Through every kind of prayer and plea, praying at all times in the Spirit and staying awake toward Him with all kinds of perseverance and pleas on behalf of all the holy ones. And Paul says, on my behalf, that a message would be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with courage the mystery of the gospel on behalf of which I serve as a chained ambassador so that in it I may speak courageously as I should. Or as I should, as I should speak. So how do we become more powerful? Well, Paul gives us the battle gear. But again, we have five and a half chapters leading up to this. So let's take a few moments. All right. I've, I've gone past halfway point. But we're going to take the rest of our time and start in chapter one. And hear the message. Okay, not line by line. We'll summarize. But what is Ephesians chapter one teaching us on how to be powerful? What do powerful people do? Well, they begin by turning to Ephesians chapter 1. So that's what we're going to do. And again, I'm going to read from my translation up because I think it's better. Because I've been working on it for months, a little tiny bit at a time. And I'm going to use it. We're going to start in verse 3. We'll read some, 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 some parts, uh, highlight some things. Oh, well, we'll see what happens. Well, let me, let me start by saying this. Verse 3, the letter starts, okay, after he gives his letter opening. Verse 3, he begins the letter. And here's how it begins. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's praise. High praise. It's the entire first chapter until verse 15. And then he breaks into intercession. The entire first chapter of Ephesians is praise and intercession. It's not absolutely directly to the Ephesians. It's for them. It's communicating to them. But Paul lets them in on his praise and intercession life. That's our first clue. I could stop here and we get the idea. I'll just expound a little. Okay? And I'll try to peel back some things to help us see it. Powerful people are continually giving God high praise. Right? But it's not just a habit or a discipline. Though I believe in that, sometimes the emotions aren't there. And it must be. I totally agree with that. But there's more going on here. This is an outburst from a heart that really loves God. And sees, at least to the measure God allows, how good God is. And must praise Him. Like I'm not just a Christian who's into a bunch of things in God too. God has overwhelmed me. With his sheer beauty. And that's where I begin my life. That's what characterizes. God. He's not. He's not your cousin's grandmother's. Old religion where we just go to church. Or whatever we do. And Although that grandmother may have really known the Lord. The point is it's not just something we inherit. And it's not just religious. God is real. He's spirit. And we know him. And he's awesome. And if we really understood who who he is. We would really like constantly get into him and burst out in high praise. That's where we become powerful when we're God centered and God oriented. Because Yahweh's good. 
He really, it, the scripture says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Right? Or, or, uh, Psalm 36. What, what's that? Psalm 35? 37. Excuse me. And then it's Psalm 36, I think, where it says, um, how great is your goodness? Is that the one? No, that's not the one. But that's a good one too. How great is your goodness stored up for those who fear you? Uh, what's the other one? Um, we, we feast on the abundance of your house, O, o Lord. And we drink of the river of your delights. For in your light, we see light. For with you is the fountain of life. That's powerful people who actually know their God. They drink deeply of his spirit, of his being. And they can't help but put their heads up the way John Piper said. They they put their heads up after drinking from the fountain and they say, ah. And that ah, that's high praise to God. God is good and he's awesome. And I just, when I spend time with him, it's just high praise. This is the first thing that we do. The first thing that we do is I and hopefully others are just praying that God would unveil his goodness to our hearts. They would just do the Superman thing and we would go, yeah! Woo! That's awesome. Praise God. High praise. That's powerful. High praise that comes from a heart that actually sees God and loves him and says, I don't care if I don't do anything else. I just want to be here and praise you. But then God switches it later into intercession and then activity. You see, he won't leave you there. But after you're satisfied, he says, all right, now I'm going to put burdens on you for people. Then you intercede. That's verses 15 and following. And then he's, he sends us forth. It's just part of life. But it's, it's anchored in this theater of Yahweh's goodness. It's time for us really to feast. Okay, I'll read in a minute. I'm speaking generally. Paul praises the Lord for specific reasons. So that's going to be part two of our praise thing. Part one is, come on guys, let's pull the, the curtain back and just start seeking the beauty of the Lord. That's why I wanted to sing Yahweh tonight. I'll call it a hymn. This has been my prayer for me, my wife, my children, and my friends here in these churches. And the saints of our city. That's how I pray. Show us your glory, Yahweh. Let your goodness pass before us. Right before our eyes. And we will worship. That's my prayer. And we will bow. And we will call you Lord. And we will kneel before the maker of the universe. And he says again. We will call you Lord. Yahweh, Yahweh. Oh, that's Exodus 34. Yahweh, Yahweh God. Compassionate and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands. Who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the grandchildren. To the third and fourth generation. No, that is not God talking from an Old Testament point of view only. Before he got saved. God is kind like a mother. He's compassionate. And it's very difficult to make him angry. And for those who embrace his covenant... He stores up all kinds of forgiveness and wipes it all away. But for those who refuse it, he's just and will bring judgments because he's wonderful. Who wants to worship a God who's not perfectly just and perfectly righteous and perfectly holy? Who also happens to be more compassionate, gentle, kind and gracious than all the compassionate, gentle, kind, gracious people who ever lived in history put together a million times. I don't know how he can be all that, but he is. And if we think about it 
more will praise. Praise God. What's the other part of that song? Yahweh, Yahweh. Um, Ancient one, yet you're here today. Um, Ageless one, changeless one, showing love to all generations. Then show me your glory. And then the next stanza is Yahweh, Yahweh, faithful one. Um, Yahweh, Yahweh, faithful one. You have shown us the way through the years, through all our lives. You have shown you are faithful to the end. It's pretty simple. It's great high praise. I think that would that might be called uh, something from the the hymn category because because it's, um, it's 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 a it's a written song based on scripture. So we have psalms, we have hymns, we have spiritual songs. Let the high praises go forth. Amen. Praise God. Psalms. You know Yahweh reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Man, let's meditate on His sovereignty from everlasting to everlasting. Yahweh reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Uh, 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 um, A fire goes before Him and burns up all His enemies. Let's take these things out of the, you know, the the familiar lyrics and let the reality of the words sink in and start to get into God. Let's get into God, man. It sounds a little kind of Jesus movement from the 60s and 70s. Let's get into God. Crown him with many crowns. That's a hymn. A hymnos. A composed song based on scriptural truths. We have psalms right out of the psalms. We have hymns. Crown him with many crowns. The lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Isn't that powerful? Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. That's high praise. We must restore high praise in the house of the Lord, in our hearts, in our mouths, in our churches. High praise. God is awesome. Let, Let him overwhelm us a little bit and a lot as we can handle it. So, Lord, uh, peel back the shroud and show us your glory. We can't really handle what we're talking about. You know how to dispense this. So we're praying in our toddlerhood. The best we know, we pray for an answer to the prayer. But do answer. Unveil your beauty to our hearts that we might see that beauty and praise you with the highest praise. The sovereign God from everlasting to everlasting. May we see you in your majesty and in your humility and in your majesty. Praise God. Right? Jesus did not think it um, robbery or he did not insist that we treat him as if he's the one who existed in the form of God. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bond slave and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He's already now just a man. So to speak, at least the early model in these old bodies. As a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Then that's as low as you can go. That's like the the limbo bar is on the ground being rolled on by big feet. That's as low as you can go. Crucifixion was outside the realm of humanity. It wasn't even it wasn't even legal for a Roman citizen to be crucified. Only those outside. The civilized world. It was a statement as well as torture. He was stripped of everything. No bathroom break. No way to swat away the flies. 
uh, being tormented uh, without his dignity, dead socially before he was dead physically, and being tortured on the way. He went as low as a man could go, even though he was and is and always shall be the sovereign, dignified, glorious prince of heaven from everlasting to everlasting. That's the level of humility he had. He took upon himself all that darkness had to offer. Without exception, he took it upon himself for our, our, on our behalf. And then, now that's glorious humility. You see what I'm saying right now? I'm not, this isn't random. This is high praise. Because when darkness exhausted itself on Jesus, and literally to the point of death, he rose from the grave to the highest place, which means darkness has no more power over him. He is utterly and absolutely sovereign, even over a world that gave the devil some legal rights. Are you hearing me? He's ascended. That's high praise. We should be talking and singing about this. And thinking about it. Now, a couple of highlights from the praise version, uh, a portion, excuse me, of, of chapter one. Yeah. I'm coming in for a landing, so don't worry. How blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, the Messiah. The one who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly regions in the Messiah. It goes on. He chose us in him before the world began to be holy and blameless before him. Guys, these are covenant benefits. These are the benefits of redemption. This is Psalm 103 fulfilled and exploded and on steroids. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits. And then there's the list. Well, here's a new covenant list. He predetermined to adopt us as His own children through Jesus the Messiah, according to the great pleasure that He has in His own plan. What else? It's all for the acclaim due the splendor of His grace. He showered us with favor in the Beloved. We possess liberation through His blood, the pardon of offenses. He lavished on us with all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of His plan. So He communicated His plan to us. We're not just salvaged, we're brought into His counsel. We're brought into the highest court. The highest. We all have the spirit, which means we're all prophetic. We stand on the counsel of the Lord. And God freely shares his plan with us. So we can commune with him, get the plan, interact with him about it, and then go do something about it. We're brought in. These are the benefits of salvation. It's not just our sins are forgiven. We are given the highest kind of significance. He made known to us the mystery. Verse 10, uh, he set this forth in him for the stewardship of the fullness of the times. Everything's going to be summed up in heaven and on earth in Christ. That's a pretty, that's, that's the plan. That's pretty awesome. The meaning of life. Cool. No, it's not what these guys, not, not this religion, not that. This, this is the meaning of life. That everything in heaven and on earth will be summed up in the Messiah one day. And we are contributing to God's plan to see that to the end. That's a pretty significant place to be. We do everything that way. Whether it's the deepest kind of intercession or we're just trying to train our kid to do something differently. It's all to serve this plan. Alright, so you could read on. We have in verse 13, after hearing the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, after also believing in him, you were sealed by the promised spirit, the Holy One, who is the deposit of our inheritance. Until the, the, the possession is fully liberated. 
All of this, it results in the acclaim that's due his splendor or his glory. So there's the other thing we do to, to get high praise in our hearts and mouth. Meditate upon the glorious benefits of salvation in the new covenant. Let's really think about it. Yes, I'm forgiven of my sin. Okay, get on that for a little bit. I was, I was an offender. They've been forgiven. My offenses have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus. Let's, let's get on this. I, I share counsel. I can get revelation about this plan. I, I don't just read my Bible to plug in my quiet time. I sit in counsel with the Lord. I can hear His voice. I can help move this plan forward in my generation, in my city. But yes, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Man, as almost every day at least, or definitely every, I don't know, I mean, it seems like more than once a day. Thank you, Father God, for the blood of Jesus that atones. And, and, and for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father God. I mean, let's go through the benefits of our covenant and, and, and get our hearts trained to give high praise with genuine appreciation. That's powerful people. You know the power of gratitude. It makes you able to do anything. There's times we face things that's easier said than done, but it's still doable. And then in verse 15, and I'll really summarize here. Paul says, in light of all this, having heard of your faith or your collective faith in the Lord Jesus, as well as your love for all the holy ones, I never stop giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. And then he prays for the hope. No, no. He prays that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. See, Paul has an agenda. All these people I led to the Lord, all these people that my disciples led to the Lord, who are now in churches in these different cities, many of whom are getting distracted by carnality. I pray constantly for them that the spirit would pop open their hearts so the eyes of their hearts could see the reality in the spirit realm and live according to that, the things that God has done, rather than according to the things they see with their eyes. And he specifies the hope of his calling, the wealth of of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and, and, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? Those three things. The, the hope. So the, the coming consummation of the kingdom, number one. That that be real to our hearts. Number two. That we see the value of the saints. We see the value of one another. To the Lord. And just who we are. And then number three. That we have our hearts conditioned by the reality of a power. That raised Jesus from the dead. And defeated every bad thing that ever existed. Let's pray these things for one another. Powerful people intercede for the churches that their hearts would be enlightened to see the glories of the kingdom and, and, and all that so that it would be made practical. Paul prays for the spirit of wisdom and revelation. So the, the wisdom means is this is all so that we can apply these glorious truths to everyday life and to the way we do church. This is the way I pray for you all. All the time. Sometimes I put it in different words, but it's generally the same. And I pray for myself and my family too. That the eyes of our hearts will be enlightened to see the kingdom. The ascended Lord and all he implies so that it becomes practical. So that it becomes an infection. That gets in our bloodstream and then into our brains. And causes us to be a kind of people that God has called. I'm talking about a holy contagion. A holy infection that just latches onto our system and becomes a part of our life. That's what I pray. Because that makes powerful people. Now we're going to be praying it for one another and for the saints in our city. And whoever else God leads you to pray. Which is something he mentions in chapter 6. But we're not there yet. So I'll pause and ask you to stand.